Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Primate Cast. We're your hosts, Andrew McIntosh. And Chris Martin. And today we're going to be rolling along with our uh, podcast series here from the IIAS. And this time we're pretty excited because we have a friend of ours who's on the show. That's right. We have Dora Biro. So why don't you tell us about Dora? So Dora and I are actually collaborators on a, on a few chimpanzee studies. And she's spent time, we've overlapped here at the PRI a bit. Um, where we both have been studying chimpanzee social learning and uh, cognition. So Dora is in the Department of Zoology at Oxford University. She's a Royal Society University Research Fellow. And recently, she has become a member of the faculty of Oxford. Yeah, we'd like to say congratulations, Dora, if you're out there listening. Congratulations. (laughs) That's really great. It was a a really nice presentation that she gave. She was an invited speaker at the IIAS. And uh, so she's talking about social information use um, and... She talked about your projects during her, your collaborative projects during her talk and made a plug for your poster, which eventually <laughs> led to you winning. I think that's the reason I won, actually, the poster competition. I think she, she was the first one. Absolutely. Yeah. So, that's, <laughs> so thank you, Dora. It's also a, a good lesson for winning the poster competition. If, if you really want to win poster competitions, you should have someone talk about your poster in an oral presentation. So. Especially someone as distinguished as, uh, <laughs> as Dr. Right. Biro. Absolutely. So in addition to your collaborative projects that, that she'll be talking about during this podcast, Dora's also going to get into some of the other work that she's been doing with social information flow and navigation in flocks or groupings of pigeons. And uh, that's some of the work she's been, she's been doing in collaboration with a, a lab in Hungary led by Dr. Tomas Vicek, who uh, I also had the privilege of meeting a couple years ago or a year ago in Tokyo at a conference on complexity. And his presentation kind of blew me away the way that he was able to visualize the flocks of pigeons with their little GPS backpacks. And Dora's going to talk a bit about that later, too. Okay, so here's the interview. All right, so Dora, you came to Japan as a brave undergraduate student, and I'm very curious kind of the story behind that and also kind of your history of coming to Japan and, and studying chimpanzees here. Okay, um, yeah, so I, I first came to Japan in 1996, mm-hmm. um, and that was between my second and third undergraduate years um, at Oxford. And within the Oxford system, what happens is that during that summer, so between your second and third year, you're supposed to do, you were at the time supposed to do an undergraduate research project, which was basically a free choice. You could do whatever you wanted. You could find a local supervisor and stay in Oxford and do whatever your supervisor told you to do, or you were free to approach basically anybody in the world and 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 try and do an internship somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I, during that second year of my undergraduate studies, I became very interested in chimpanzees. Um, and so what I did was I wrote to a bunch of chimpanzee researchers around the world, basically saying, um, I'm interested in your work, um, would you mind if I came and worked with you for the summer? Which I think, I mean, looking back, was sort of a naive um, idea, perhaps, because, you know, it's not that easy to go and work with Jay Goodall, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, one of the few positive replies that I had uh, came from Professor Matsuzawa. Uh, in fact, he was one of the last people to reply, but he replied uh, with a yes. And I was incredibly excited because actually off, off of my list of people that I contacted, he was the one that I wanted to work with the most. I was really interested in his 
um, lab experiments on chimpanzee cognition and um, I, you know, I felt like that's, that's the kind of thing that I want to do. And right. so now it's 16 years later or thereabouts, yeah. and yet you still have this relationship uh, with Professor Masazawa, with Japan, and with the research that's going on here. Can you talk about how that's kind of evolved? Yeah, I mean, so at the time when I first came there, I really never dreamed that I'd still be coming back to Japan 16 years later. And also, I, you know, I became involved in the wild chimpanzee work that Professor Masazawa runs as well. And these were things that I never imagined would happen. But I think it's down to the fact that I enjoyed that first summer so much. Um, it was an incredible learning experience for me. I had never done actual research. You know, when you're an undergraduate, you go from class to class and, and you basically, you know, learn facts and, and write essays. You know, you don't go into a lab and, and, and you know, perform experiments, cognitive experiments in chimpanzees. So for me, it was an incredible experience. I, I learned not just about chimpanzees, but about how to do research, how to design an experiment, you know, the logistics involved in running experiments, in analyzing data, and, and so forth. So, um, I, in fact, I think I came originally for a month and a half or something, and then I enjoyed being here so much that I, I postponed my plane ticket and I stayed um, as long as I could, basically, before my next semester started. So, um, I think, because it was such a positive experience, I, I, you know, I spent my third year, my third undergraduate year, just dreaming of, of coming back here and, and being able to work here again. It's actually true. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the type of research you were doing while you were at PRI was on serial ordering, mm -hmm. introduction yeah. of zero. Yeah. And um, now you're doing something kind of totally different. And so, what, what was the transition for you coming, doing chimpanzee research at PRI and then kind of moving on to the next step? Yeah, so, so my PhD was actually on bird navigation, so okay. a very different topic, yes. Sure. Um, and in terms of uh, actually doing research, there was a lot from the chimpanzee work that I could apply to the pigeon work in terms of designing experiments mm -hmm. and just, you know, asking the right questions and thinking of the right manipulation to include in your experiment to answer the question that you're interested in. So in that sense, you know, the, the two weren't that far apart. I think the real difference was in the animals themselves, mm -hmm. the, the subjects themselves, because chimpanzees are a very, very different type of creature to work with compared to birds. The, my, my sort of main the main contrast that I, that I felt was that when you work with chimpanzees, you have to basically establish a personal relationship with them. I mean, the way it works at PRI is that the chimps come voluntarily to the uh, experimental rooms, so you have to basically be friends with them. You know, if they don't like you, they won't come. Um, and also, even if they come, they might not want to do your experiment. Um, if they're in a bad mood, or if you know, if you've done something nasty to them, or mm -hmm. you know, if they have a, some grudge <laughs> because last time you didn't give them the right food or something, so you needed to really be aware of this 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 relationship that you had with your with your um, uh, subject. That's right. I mean, you spend so much time negotiating. Yes, with the exactly. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And with with my bird experiments, that was never an issue. So. Right. 
in that se in, a, in a sense, it was easier because with the with the bird navigation experiments, what it basically involved is going into the into pigeon lofts and picking up pigeons and putting them in boxes and driving them off in cars. And you know, the birds had no say in this. You know, right. <laughs> if I was skillful enough to catch them, then they were in the experiment. They had no choice. Whereas um, with the chimps, that you know, that that was a very different experience for them and for me. Mm. Um, so, but at the same time, I think with the birds, I missed this sure. interpersonal almost relationship with the subjects. And it's also interesting. So now, kind of your theme is social information, right. and it, it, you have found a way to synthesize mm. what you're doing in terms of information flow in birds with. Uh, with chimpanzees in the wild and also in captivity. So what, what has that been like? Um, it's been a very happy experience for me because I think for a long time uh, when I told people about what sorts of things I was researching, you know, I'd mentioned the chimps and I'd mentioned the bird studies and the, the kind of standard question would be, so what's the relationship between them? And there wasn't really much that I could say other than, you know, I'm interested in cognition, in animal cognition, in how animals solve different problems that they face in the environment. But in one case, it's a navigational problem, a spatial cognition problem. And in the other case, it's numerical competence or symbolic competence, um, serial learning. So, you know, the, the actual problems I was tackling in the two species were very different. Um, and then I became more and more interested in the social side of things, and I think that came mainly from the wild chimpanzee work, um, where you're not working with individual subjects, you're working with a community of chimps, and you have to be aware of the, you know, the relationships that exist within those communities. It's very obvious that they interact uh, you know, every minute of every day, uh, individuals watch each other, individuals respond to what others are doing, so I think that led to uh, more and more of an interest in, in how social groups of animals worked and also in how they solved problems collectively. Um, yeah. Let me ask you about, I wanna, I'm really interested in this one aspect of the bird research you do, which is the birds are wearing GPS backpacks. That's right, yes. And that way you can track each bird and then look at how they all influence each other. Yes, that's, that's right. That's exactly so that's true. that's really fascinating. Yeah. So could you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that has really helped this work along has been the, the recent developments in sensor technology. So GPS in particular wasn't around, mini, miniature GPS wasn't around when I was um, starting my PhD. And actually, uh, people developed the, the very first um, sort of sub 50 gram GPS's um, halfway through my PhD, so that's when I began, uh, began. Sorry, that's when I became able to use them in experiments, and that's when I suddenly managed to get really detailed, really high resolution data on where actually these birds went. Before that, I never knew. I just released them in one place. I looked at which way they departed from that place, and then I looked at how long it took them to get home. But what actual route they took to get home, I had no idea. And suddenly. You just get this amazing window into what these birds are actually doing um, along the way. And ever since then, GPS has become, you know, they've become lighter, they've become even higher resolution. So now we're at the stage where we can really get very, very detailed data on what's going on within a flock of birds, for example. So you can look at how they respond to each other. You can, you, you know, you get uh, data that's, you know, you get 
movements at the scale of a fraction of a second. So you know that if a bird turns, then you know, 0.3 seconds later, another bird will turn. You know, these are things that we weren't really able to, to um, get data on uh, 10 or even five years ago. Can you tell us about maybe some of the rules that they're actually following when that happens, when they're flocking, and how they use each other's behavior? And right, so, so, so there's two sorts of extremes that we can think of when we uh, want to work out what happens in a flock, basically, who, you know, who's, is there a leader, or is it a, a democratic flock where everyone gets to have a say in what the flock does? So the two extremes would be a perfectly democratic system where everyone has a vote, but it's basically equal, everyone's vote has equal weight, and the flock um, averages these uh, opinions about which way each bird wants to go, and you end up with a completely average, um, average decision. And you can achieve this kind of perfect democracy um, from, uh, it's a kind of self-organizing system where individuals respond to their neighbors, and those neighbors respond to their neighbors, and so forth, and that gives, that can give rise to a, a perfectly democratic, perfect averaging decision. At the other extreme, you could have a single leader who basically makes all the decisions and everybody just follows him. And interestingly, what we found by tracking these birds with high-resolution miniature GPS, um, this is work I've done in collaboration with a group of statistical physicists in, in Hungary, um, is that reality is somewhere in between. So it's neither a perfectly democratic system nor a perfectly despotic system. In fact, it's a kind of hierarchical uh, um, arrangement where every individual gets a vote, but different individuals' votes carry different weights. So there'll be consistently kind of high-ranking individuals whose decisions will generally be followed by everybody else in the group or most others in the group, but even the ones that are lower down in this hierarchy can occasionally make decisions that others follow. So on average, there will be consistent leaders and consistent followers, but even the followers get a say in what the flock does from time to time. Yeah, and there's some interesting work with primates too. I'm thinking of like Cedric Suez's work, for example, using the social style of the macaque society and how it could influence the emergence of, uh, of collective decisions. And so there is a de democratic system in some species, like the, crest the Tonkian macaques that mm. he studies, but then maybe not in other species that mm. are more despotic. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the, the aspects of social information use then is this kind of emergence of collective behaviors and the coordination of groups and things like that. But then on the other side, you also do work on how it relates to social learning. Yes, and, and, and I mean, to me, it's a, it's, a, it's a very much related issue because both sides of this coin depend on the fact that a group will have individuals within it who have different knowledge, different experiences, different opinions about things. And in the short term, that can that, that becomes a problem of group coordination. You know, moment to moment, how do I respond to what my groupmate wants to do if, if that groupmate has a different opinion about something? But it can also lead, I think, very interestingly to social learning. So if I know something that you don't, then you have the opportunity to learn from me and vice versa. So I think this kind of diversity within groups gives rise to lots of interesting um, opportunities for individuals to coordinate or find ways of coordinating uh, with each other, but also um, to learn things that, that perhaps they didn't know before.
Yeah, okay, so this kind of within-group diversity can manifest itself in lots of different ways. There might be animals that know certain behaviours that others don't, and then in that case, those naive individuals have the opportunity to learn from the knowledgeable ones that are completely new behaviour, um, which is you know, the case with tool use, for example. We, we think that probably most instances of tool use behaviour in chimpanzees are socially maintained, so they're not... Um, something that individuals necessarily learn by invent and learn by themselves. These are things that they see other group members do, and at least in part, they are socially scaffolded when when young chimpanzees learn new tool using skills. Um, interestingly, this kind of social learning can apply in other contexts uh, too. And 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 with the bird work, I'm looking at how. Uh, information on routes, so specific routes that individuals like to take, can be transmitted from, you know, knowledgeable to naive individuals, and it's you know a problem that applies, for example, to a lot of migrating species, long-distance migrants, where older or more experienced individuals might know more about what the, you know, what the best route is to take from, uh, you know, wintering to to breeding grounds, and if they take young. Uh, individuals along with them, or, if, or probably more likely the individuals who will follow with these um, knowledgeable individuals, then they have a chance to learn uh, things that, you know, that perhaps it would be more costly if they were to try to figure out by themselves. Cool. Dora, thanks for joining us on the Primate thank Cast. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me. You have been listening to the Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at the Primate Cast.